0: Feminist, activist, and poet. Welcome to a podcast episode about a woman whose political career began with her as a rebel and ended with her as governor of a state. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and on this episode I will be discussing the remarkable life and career of Sarojini Naidu. Internationally famous and internationally active in the early decades of the 20th century, her posthumous reputation has been more limited. She's still a big name for citizens and historians of India, but I still think she deserves to be better known. I myself discovered her through her poetry. It was only later that I discovered that a famous photo of Mahatma Gandhi, with which I had long been familiar, included Naidu at his side, as his colleague and collaborator, and anonymized in the caption, or made merely a woman. Looking at her career will take us from the early days of the international feminist movement at the beginning of the 20th century, through India's long fight for freedom from British imperial rule, and its national formation in the era of decolonization. But let's begin at the beginning. Sarojini Naidu, born Sarojini Ciatopatie, was a prodigy. Her parents were both highly educated and multilingual, and she followed their example, though she recalled later that she resisted her father's attempts to have her learn English as a child. Young Sarojini was enrolled in classes at the University of Madras, in what is now Chennai, by the age of 12, and her multilingual literary output, moreover, was so impressive that she was sponsored to attend university in England, From the age of 16, she studied first at King's College, London, and later at Girton College, Cambridge, one of the first institutions of higher learning for women. Her intelligence and literary aptitude were clear, and her family had the means to see that they were cultivated. And this became something of a double-edged sword. The lyricism and the sensitivity of her poetry gained rapid acclaim, but they were praised in ways that often relied on Orientalist tropes. I've talked about Orientalism before on this podcast, and it's important. Edward Said came up with the term Orientalism to both describe and analyze what he calls taking, quote, the basic distinction between East and West as the starting point for elaborate theories, epics, novels, social descriptions, and political accounts concerning the Orient, unquote. The introduction of Sarojini Naidu's 1905 poetry collection, The Golden Threshold, written by Arthur Simons, provides a textbook illustration of this. Simons, enthusing about Naidu's poetry, said that the poems should be valued for their quote, bird-like quality of song, going on to say that they hint, in a sort of delicately evasive way, at a rare temperament, the temperament of a woman of the East, finding expression through a Western language and under partly Western influences, and there is an Eastern magic in them. This highly perfumed praise ignores, I think, some of the inherently political nature of Naidu's choice to write poems in English, extolling the long history and rich cultures, very much cultures plural and we'll come back to this as well, of India. She herself wrote of her poetry both as a gift and as a form of escape from the strictures and anxieties of the chronic illness from which she suffered, especially in her youth. She sometimes referred to herself as a wandering singer. And her early poem, Wandering Singers, evokes both her cosmopolitan sensibilities and her deep attachment to the long and often undervalued history of India. Its first two stanzas run, Where the voice of the wind calls our wandering feet Through echoing forest and echoing street With lutes in our hands, ever singing we roam All men are our kindred, the world is our home Our lays are of cities whose luster is shed, the laughter and beauty of women long dead, the sword of old battles, the crown of old kings, and happy and simple and sorrowful things. Much as I love The Golden threshold, I am mindful that this is a history podcast and not a poetry reading. But I think it's worth highlighting a few of these poems to gain a sense both of how Naidu's early literary reputation was made, and the ways in which her literary output was connected to her own vision and ambition. As Sheshalatha Reddy has argued, Naidu systematically refuses to disentangle poetry and politics. In a poem simply called Life, she writes, "'Till ye have battled with great grief and fears, And borne the conflict of dream-shattering years, Wounded with fierce desire, And worn with strife. Children, ye have not lived, for this is life." This view of life as inseparable from conflict, and conflict as a thing inseparable from dreams and desires, is one that I find very moving in its tribute to resilience and perseverance. The Golden Threshold itself bridges two periods of Naidu's life, with both poems dating to the period of her education and poems written after her marriage, including ones dedicated to her children, which are adorable. But I'm getting ahead of myself. She met Mutiala Govindarujlu Naidu, a physician, when she was studying in England. Having been educated in Hyderabad and Madras, he had come to the University of Edinburgh, one of the foremost medical schools in the world, to take his degrees. Mutiala came from a family of lower caste than Sarojini's own, and as such, in marrying at all, they were going against long traditions. Moreover, Naidu was a decade older than Sarojini was. But they fell in love, and in 1898, having returned to India, they married. They were married according to a civil ceremony governed by the Special Marriages Act enacted a few decades earlier. A 1915 entry in the Indian Biographical Dictionary has an entry from Muthyana, detailing his education and publications, numerous articles in The Lancet, and identifying Sarojini briefly as his wife and her famous father's daughter. But more than literary fame was around the corner for her. In order to understand Naidu's activist career, It's important to remember how ideas of modernity were taking shape and being debated around the globe from the 1880s onwards. Anxieties around modernity, nationalism, and imperialism all change, of course, with the First World War. But also, those anxieties, and conversations around those anxieties, continue around the war. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in Meiji Japan, in post-imperial Russia, in India, we see discourses of international feminism linked to discussions of political reform and political change, including resistance to empire. The history of feminism has often been whitewashed, and in the US and the UK, it can often be treated as a primarily Anglophone phenomenon. But in the early 20th century, we not only see many different movements for women's rights and women's education, but also a very self-aware international feminism, especially in the aftermath of World War I. I also think it's fair to say that outside India, the history of Indian independence is too often taught as that of a moment, or at least as the product of a specifically World War II era dynamic leading to global decolonization. But this representation glosses over decades, and indeed nearly a century, of national anti-imperialist activism and organization in the subcontinent. The Indian National Congress, founded in 1885, was a broadly based political organization dedicated to fighting for autonomy from Great Britain. This was, of course, an extremely complex endeavor which could easily be the subject of a podcast in itself. Today, we're going to be focusing on the ways in which Sarojini Naidu became involved in the linked causes of feminism and Indian independence. Naidu took her place alongside Mahatma Gandhi and others in the forefront of imagining non-British sources of Indian identity in the early 20th century and throughout the interwar period. She and Gandhi met in London in 1914 in the aftermath of his successful protesting against the British law for universal fingerprinting of Indians. Yes, really. She found him, as she recalled it, eating a messy meal of squashed tomatoes and olive oil out of a wooden prison bowl. She laughed at which Gandhi identified her correctly. Who else, he asked, would dare be so irreverent? He invited her to share his meal. She said it looked awful and wouldn't. And from that time forth, they were fast friends, as attested by their lively and voluminous correspondence. Sarojini Naidu's political activism, of course, was not without opposition. In 1918, in a speech to the Madras Provincial Conference, Naidu said that she had frequently been asked why she had come, quote, out of the ivory tower of dreams into the marketplace, unquote, and why she had deserted the pipes and flute of the poet to be the most strident trumpet of those who stand and call the nation to battle. Her answer was that it was the poet's destiny, and not only that, but her destiny specifically, because she said the possibility of India's freedom lay before them all and would need to be fought for, quote, Therefore, today, in the hour of struggle, I, a weak woman, have come out of my home. I, a dreamer of dreams, have come into the marketplace, and I say, Go forth, comrades, to victory. Unquote. You can pause the episode here to applaud. Among other things, Naidu was a phenomenal public speaker. I think it's almost impossible to listen to the cadences of her speeches or even read them without wanting to cheer. Moreover, In speeches given to diverse audiences at multiple points in her career, from a speech to college students in 1903 to a nationally televised address after independence, her addresses are notable for the ways in which they insist on Indian identity as something that both can and should include multiple regions, multiple languages, and multiple faiths. In 1925, Naidu was elected to succeed Gandhi as president of the Indian National Congress the first Indian woman to hold the position. The first woman president, parenthetically, was elected in 1917, Annie Besant, a feminist and socialist activist who had been outspoken in support of home rule for India. Naidu and Besant had been jointly involved in protests in both India and England, and Naidu herself, before election as president of the National Congress, had represented the group in Africa. Her activism continued after her year as president. She went on speaking tours throughout India demanding women's rights. And in 1928, she crossed the Atlantic and went on a speaking tour throughout the United States. A trip to the US may seem like something of a surprise twist, but Naidu, like Gandhi, saw the US as a strong potential ally in the fight for independence from Britain. After all, fighting for independence from Britain was something with which American audiences should sympathize. There's a contemporary newsreel from this speaking tour linked in the bibliography, in which Naidu formally greets her American audiences, representing herself as bringing a message of fellow feeling to a young nation from an ancient one. And this is a gutsy move, explicitly invoking India's continuous history and vigorous identity, speaking as a representative of one nation to another, at a time when India is not yet legally and politically independent of Britain. Sarojini Naidu's rhetoric suggests that these legal realities are ultimately less important than India's long history and distinctive cultural identity. Naidu was also, by her presence and her work, pushing back against narratives about India's inferiority and unfitness for self-government, and against narratives about the morality or immorality of Indian women in particular. As Marina Lini Sinha has argued, the breathtakingly racist book, Mother India, written by the American author Catherine Mayo, was a catalyst for the joining of nationalist and feminist causes in 1920s India. We know more about Naidu's experiences of her US tour from her letters to Gandhi, in which she animatedly reports both on what she was saying and on how she was received. In Cincinnati, Ohio, she said that she kept things simple, with her message being, quote, from first to last, from the initial to the ultimate world, the evangel of self-deliverance from every kind of personal, national, economic, social, intellectual, political, and spiritual bondage, unquote. And one presumes mic drop. In the same letter, she writes enthusiastically of working together with Jane Addams of Hull House, which Naidu describes as as much a center of contemporary history as the President's White House at Washington. Naidu also eagerly explains that, while heartbroken at the systemic racial injustice in the U.S., she has enjoyed the opportunity to speak with Black Americans, whom she refers to as the yet-disinherited children of America. And this keen awareness of injustice on multiple scales was a consistent characteristic of her thought, work, and writing. On the same 1928 visit to America, she was made a sort of impromptu guest of honor at a banquet in New York City, and asked to speak. The banquet was being held by the World Alliance for Peace. Ten years after a world war, and with ongoing tensions and revolutions, such international associations were many. And rather than being blandly polite, Sarojini Naidu stood up and demanded to know where among the flags of all the member states of the group, where was the flag of India? And how, she asked, could there be honest and productive conversation about world peace when approximately one-fifth of the world's population was still under imperial subjection? How indeed, we may say. But this may not have made a comfortable message for its hearers. Naidu herself described her audience that evening as somewhat startled, but enthusiastic. When she spoke at that New York banquet, notably, it was at the guest of the National Congress's founder and his wife. I mention this because one of the things that I find so remarkable about Sarojini Naidu's life and work is the ways in which it bridges generations of activism and several distinct stages of the long Indian fight for independence. In moving into the later and more famous stages of that fight and her career, I allude to them only briefly because of how renowned episodes like Gandhi's Salt March are. Naidu, having advocated for the inclusion of women in this movement, was present for the Salt March as both an observer and a chronicler, sometimes weaving the khadi cloth which was both made and worn by independence activists as a way of protesting the exploitation of India by Britain's imperial economy. Like her fellow activists, Naidu endured repeated arrest and imprisonment. And it's worth remembering that by the time of her arrest for participation in the Quit India Movement in 1942, she was in her 60s, an iconic literary figure and a still dauntless politician and activist. Her dual role as a poet and politician was by this point widely accepted. When the Constituent Assembly was formed to draft a constitution for India, She was introduced to the gathering as the nightingale of India to appreciative applause. Naidu herself gently upbraided the chairman for giving her an introduction that was not political, but poetical, and then settled down to the business of politics, paying tribute to leaders from multiple faiths and advocating for the rights of tribal groups. Not the least remarkable thing about Naidu's remarkable life and career, to my mind, is the tenacity with which she argued for the terms of India’s future. And when, finally, India did achieve its formal independence in 1947, Sarojini Naidu was appointed its first female governor. And to this role as to so many others, she devoted herself not only with energy but with joy. The end of any biographical episode is always perhaps a little discouraging. Sarojini Naidu died at the age of 70 at her residence in Lucknow, Uttar Pradesh. Her death was mourned as her life was celebrated. And her legacy, too, remains a justly important one. Women's Day in India is observed on her birthday. She's had university buildings and an asteroid named after her. But while her activism in her lifetime was deliberately global in both scope and outlook, her posthumous reputation has flourished mostly in India. So this episode aims to re-internationalize the Nightingale of India, the poet, who insisted that her destiny was to be a part of the battle against, in her own words, every kind of bondage. Thank you for listening. This and all of our Footnoting History episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel.